how that feels. I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like to not be chosen. Um, I know what it feels like to have been rejected. I, I know what it feels like to have on the inside voice that's in your head saying, you don't fit, you don't fit. And silently screaming to yourself, to myself, you loser. And what about you? Have there been moments in your life where you were not picked to be a part? Maybe you sat the bench. Maybe you got left behind and your class moved on. Maybe you made a team one year and you got to play, but then the next year, maybe you didn't get to play the next year. Have you ever been uncertain of your place on the team or uncertain of your place in a relationship? insecure about your replace uh, about your place the feeling that maybe you could be replaced maybe you have felt that you were not good enough that you were not wanted you know the orphan trained children didn't really fit in anywhere they were alone they were largely unwanted and they really didn't have anything that was passed to them from their genetic family, basically, except the clothes they had on their back for most of them. Now, they were cut off from their families, and really it was because of life circumstances or just bad situations. And we may have parents ourselves. We may not be orphans, but here's what I find interesting God would describe us as spiritual orphans. And in our case, the circumstances are on us. Now, for the, the orphan-trained children, those circumstances were not on them. They were beyond their control. But for us, our circumstances are on us. Because here's why. We have chosen our way instead of God's way. That's why they're on us. And God calls that sin. And you see, God is the one, whether we like this or not, God is the one who gets to determine what is and is not sin. Because God is perfect, and he's perfectly holy, and God is sinless. And because we have sinned, we have been cut off from God. Our relationship has been cut off. We have been separated. And that is what has made us spiritual orphans. But God loves us so much that he planned in advance for our failure. He already had a plan in place to fix our problem of sin. And this is how Paul describes that plan in place. Galatians chapter 4. We've read this each week. Here we go again. Verse 4. But when the right time came, now that lets us know God was planning in advance. And when that time came, when the right time came, and I'm going to pause with each of these phrases. They're so important, each one. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. And in verse 5 he says, God sent him to buy or purchase or redeem our freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Now Paul is the only New Covenant writer who uses the word adopt. 
and he uses it in three of the letters that he wrote. The one he wrote to the uh, Romans, the Galatians, and the Ephesians. Now, Paul uses uh, not the word adopt, that's an English word. He uses a Greek word. There's two words to that Greek word, and here's what it means in English. To place as a son. So he was not a son, and they place him as a son. And that's what Paul writes in the New Covenant. Now, the New Covenant, when I refer to that, we're talking about, you may know it as the New Testament. It's the New Covenant as well. And it's not one book, actually. We have it conveniently placed together in one book, but it's not one book. It's actually 27 documents, 27 documents. And it's written by eight, maybe nine, we're not sure about Hebrews, but eight at least guys who were inspired by God to write these documents. Now, some of the documents in the New Covenant are autobiographies. Some of them are biographies. Some of them are letters. Now, that's what Paul wrote. He wrote letters. Now, all of these were written in the first century, the very first century. They're all written from a very specific context during that very specific time. And during that very specific time, there were very specific social customs, traditions that they grew up with and lived with, daily norms for their lives. And that was thousands of years ago. Now, to understand much of what is written in those documents in the New Covenant, we have to understand um, from the perspective that they understood, the people who were hearing and reading those. We have to understand it from the culture they lived in. Let me give you an example. So if we use that word adopt and we applied our 2019, year 2019 understanding of adoption and we applied that to the passage we just read, we would get a specific meaning, but it would be the wrong meaning. If we lived in the 1800s, like 1850 during the orphan train time, if we lived during that time um, and we took that word adopt used in the New Covenant by Paul and then we applied our 1850 understanding of the word adopt, adopt from those kids from the orphan train and we applied that to the passage, we would get a specific understanding of what Paul was saying. The problem would be we would get the wrong meaning. We have to place this passage that we're reading in the context of what they understood about adoption between the years A.D. 40 and maybe A.D. 60. That's around when they were written. Because that was the kind of adoption that Paul was speaking of and writing about. So, this morning let's take a closer look at adoption in the Roman world during the year about A.D. 40. So, in ancient Rome, they did not adopt children. I mean, well, the reality is they didn't even value children. That's the truth. If they didn't want a baby, they would simply, after they had the baby, they would walk to just outside of the city and they would leave the child there, laying on the ground. They called it exposing the child. 
which meant they were exposing the child to the climate, to the atmosphere, to everything there, to the animals there. They just exposed it. They just left it and walked away, and they would let it die. They did not even value children, so they certainly wouldn't adopt a child. They only adopted adults. I know that sounds weird. I know it does. It is weird to us. They would adopt specifically adult males somewhere around 20 years of of age, maybe 30 or older even. Occasionally, an adult male would be adopted by a younger father, younger than him. I know that's weird. Uh, The adopting families were wealthy families. They were prominent families. They had a lot of status. They had power. They had position. They had great assets, lots of money, lots of land, lots of influence. Now, if that family had no sons, then they would go adopt in order to have an heir. But for many families, many families, they already had sons. They already had sons. But if those sons did not have what the father wanted or what the father thought that that son needed, if that father didn't think that the son or any of his sons could handle the family business or take on the family legacy or, or, or continue and make that family progress, then that father might forget about them, and adopt a new son. And I know that sounds weird. This new son would become the main heir to the family. He would become the eventual leader of the family, the controller of the family fortune and the family name and the controller of the family legacy. That is completely bizarre to us. You know, ancient Rome had a law, and in English, the law can be described as this, as the father's power or the rule of the father. It can be described as that as well. And this is what the the law meant, that the father had absolute rule over not just his estate, but also the members of his family and his sons and daughters, absolute rule over them, no matter their age. If the father was alive, he had rule over them. He could disown them at any age. He could sell them in adoption to another family. He could decide over the life and death of that child. He could actually put his child to death at any age, any age, for any reason. That was Rome in the first century. Now, I'm going to admit, knowing what I know about myself, (laughs) um, if there was father's rule back when I was born, I wouldn't be here today. And that's probably you too, right? I'm not alone in that. So if a father was looking for an heir, he wouldn't adopt a child. Because the death rate was... Oh, it was high in the first century. So he wouldn't adopt a child. He didn't want to pay such a high cost for the adoption and, and, and then risk that young child dying. So he wouldn't adopt a child. 
And again, he wouldn't adopt a child because, goodness, paying that high cost for the child, and then that child might grow up and be as worthless as his sons. And, and he was like, that's too big of a gamble. So he would adopt an adult. And they would adopt this adult child somewhere around their 20s or 30s, but sometimes even older. Because they waited. They wanted to see this child's, this adult child's leadership. They wanted to see this child's potential. This child's mental skills and physical strength and wisdom. Because the father was looking for someone who would be the next father of the family for the father's rule or the power of the father. The father wanted someone to take over the estate, someone who was worthy of his estate and could guarantee the future of that estate going forward. Now, this adopted man-child just happened to be from a lesser family. And now this tested man was going to enter into this new family, but not, not as a second-rate family member. No, 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 no. He was new and chosen and was now the main heir. Now, if a poor family had more than one son, and they had a son maybe who had great leadership and great talent and great ability, they would gladly offer this son up for adoption to a wealthy, high-ranking family. They would gladly do it. And, and, and it would come with a great payment to them. They would get paid a lot of money for this. And it was an enormous cost to the adopting father in order to do this. So this was an honor to the poor family to be able to have their son adopted. It was an honor. It was not a dishonor at all. Now here's what we think, though. We think, well, goodness, if that son is so great, uh, couldn't he use his leadership and, and his influence and his abilities and talent to lift that family, that poor family, into the ruling class and, and elevate the family? And the answer to that is, well, no. Uh, it, it couldn't happen. It did not happen. It would not happen. The, the family would forever be stuck as a low-influence, lower-class family. They were stuck that way. They would never enter the ruling class. That's just how it worked in first-century Roman culture. But their son could enter the ruling class if he were adopted. Now, these adoptions were very public because they were proud moments for both families, for, for the family he's coming from and for the family he's going to. And adoptions were highly regulated. They were very official. Some of the adoptions were of such a high level that the Senate had to actually vote to approve the adoption. Now, that would be like in, in Washington, D.C., the, the House of Representatives voting to approve your adoption and the Senate voting to approve your adoption and then the president then signing off on it after everybody approved. That's how important they were. That's a big deal. And so now this new man-child would take the name of his new father. 
So in this adoption, if you were adopted, you would have a new father, a new name. You would now become the heir to the estate. And if the family had other sons, those other sons, well, you as the adopted son, you were the ultimate heir. And those other sons would never replace you, never replace you as the main heir. Now, they could be co-heirs, but they could not ever replace you as the main heir. And you know what else? You were purchased at a very high price. We talked about that in week number one. And that is the adoption that Paul speaks of when he says, God has adopted us. That's what Paul was teaching. And so Paul goes on now in verse 6, and he says, And because we are his children, and that's because of adoption, we just read that in verse 5, And because we are his children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. And it prompts us, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, literally meaning Daddy, Daddy. And verse 7 is where we land for today. Listen to this. Now you are no longer a slave, but you are God's own child. And since you are his child, and we're talking about adoption, since you are his child, God has made you his heir. So here's what Paul is saying. God has chosen an heir, and God adopted him. And if you submit to the adoption, here's what it means as an heir. Everything God has, he's giving to you. Now, that makes me look pretty silly for worrying about what I have in this life. When we're heirs in God's kingdom in this next life, it makes me look silly. Who, who really cares about what kind of car I drive or what kind of house I live in? Who really cares about what my yard looks like and what kind of clothes I have and the things that I have? It makes us look pretty silly. And so many people listen to these uh, prosperity teachers that are saying that, that God wants you to have everything that you want. And they're saying that everything you ask for and you claim in faith, by faith, here on this earth, you will get. And I just want you to know, that is complete silliness. It is a lie. It is so silly for us to focus on things on the earth when we, by, as being adopted by God, we are heirs in God's kingdom to come. So if that's true, then who are God's heirs? And I can say this based upon what we've read in the New Covenant. Everyone who God adopts is God's heir. So that leads us to this question. Who does God adopt? Because, you know, if it's from my experience in the past, is he leaving some people on the bench and not going to let them play? 
Is he just picking some for his team and not going to pick others and just picking this one and this one, but the others, they're just out of luck? Who does God adopt? Now, John gives us an answer to that. And this is an autobiography. It's the Gospel of John. God inspired him to write this. John chapter 1, verse 12. Listen to what he said. But all who believed in him talking about Jesus, and accepted him, talking about Jesus, he, God, gave the right to become children of God. What is the answer? Who does God adopt? Here's the answer. All who choose to submit to him. Now get this. In the first century, when Paul wrote this, In the first century, adoption, it appears, was permanent. Adoption was permanent. Historians uh, found an ancient Roman law book that stated this. A father could never disown an adopted son. Like he was able to disown his naturally born son. An adopted son had a permanent position as a son and as the heir. The adopted son was more secure in his inheritance and his place in the family than the naturally born son was. Because a born son could be disowned. A born son could be sold. A born son could be adopted out or even killed, but not an adopted son. Do you know that nine Caesars, nine emperors of Rome were adopted from other families, and that's the only way they became emperors of Rome, because they were adopted into the royal line. And guess what? So were we. We were adopted from other families into God's royal family. And now, just now maybe, we're beginning to see what the first century readers of this letter were thinking what they were seeing when Paul said God adopted them into his family. We were in a family that had no future. No hope of ever achieving what this new family possessed. But we were chosen. And then we were purchased. And we were given a new name, a new family. And we became heirs to everything that the Father possessed. And that can never change. That's adoption. And to that, we look at that amazing act and we say, Abba, Father. We cry out, Daddy, Daddy. The result of adoption, you become a co-heir with Christ. 
everything God possesses. Unbelievable, isn't it? And you may say, but Harley, Harley, I, I, I don't feel like an heir. Harley, it's tough down here. And here's my answer, it is. And you know, it's tougher for some people even than other people. Yes, it's tough down here. But listen, we get stuck looking in the wrong direction. If you're like me, I, I get stuck messing around with the wrong things, the wrong focus, giving importance to the wrong things. So we have to get our eyes in the right place. Listen to what else Paul wrote when he wrote to the Colossians. This was a letter he wrote to them, a piece of it here. Colossians 3 verse 1. Paul says, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, and that's, he's speaking to those who have been adopted. He says, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits at the place of honor at God's right hand. He says in verse 2, think about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth. He says, for you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And now he speaks about this inheritance in verse 4, as you being a co-heir with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, he's talking about this future kingdom, you will share in all his glory. Now, why will we share in all his glory when it really belongs to Christ? And here's why. Because you've been adopted, and you are now a co-heir with Christ. And here's what I ask. If you have not yet submitted your life to the adoption, to God's adoption of you, I'm going to encourage you to do that. And here's how you do it. Right, You can do it right now, right where you are sitting. You can do this. If you will just say to God in your heart, God, I, I, I've sinned. I have lived life my way. I've done it my way. I've blown it. I've sinned. But Jesus, you died on the cross for me. Three days later, you walked out of that tomb. You defeated death. You, by dying for me, purchased my life. You paid the price for my adoption. And right now, I submit to you. You know what we call it at Stuttgart Harvest Church? We call it this, making Jesus the boss of your life. And here's what you're saying. If you're doing this, you're saying, I was the boss. And Jesus, now I declare, you are my boss. And if that's what you're doing right now, on the back of your connection card, before you turn it in, in just a moment, when the buckets come by, will you mark I'm making Christ the boss of my life. And here's why I want to know, because we want to send you some information this week. Please make sure we have a good uh, text number for you or a good email, because we want to get you some information this week. Now, to everyone else, if you have already, already submitted to that adoption, then here's my encouragement. We must get our eyes to the right place. And that's not a one-time decision. That is every single day. 
putting our eyes not on the things of around us, but on, on Christ and pursuing Him. And we have to decide that every day. We have to decide that every day. And, and not every day, once a day is probably not enough either. We have to really decide that moment by moment by moment. And I hope that you will submit to the adoption today. And I hope that you will join me and join Stuttgart Harvest Church as we strive to place our eyes on him. Let's pray. Our hearts cry out to you, Father. Oh, come and look. As we look at what kind of love you, God, our Father, have given to us. Oh, such a love. Such a price that you have paid for us. And because of that, now we are able to be called children of God. And so we are. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray these things. Amen.